Hi, my name is Robert McMahon. I'm the Connection Director here at Covenant Church, and I'm thrilled that you're listening. If you're checking us out for the first time, welcome. We're so glad that you're here, and I'd like to take this chance to invite you to let us know that you're tuning in today. We'd love nothing more than to help you start building meaningful relationships and to join you on the journey of faith. Just go to bgcovenant.org connect and let us know how we can be in touch. With that said, let's dive in and listen together to this week's message. Said We're going to jump into this week's uh, sermon on hospitality. Holy hospitality is where we've been. It's where we're going. Uh, we're about to be talking about these meals. Jesus is going to attend a meal. And before we do that, I should mention, um, I don't know if you know this, the year is racing. Uh, Easter is not that far away, which means Lent. Uh, Lent is coming in just a couple of weeks. It's, I think we're 11 days, 10 days out. Uh, Valentine's Day happens to be Ash Wednesday or Fat Tuesday's the day before. I don't know, somewhere in there. Lent begins, which is the 40 days leading up to Easter. This year, as in previous years, we're going to um, engage in uh, corporate fasting, which is an invitation to you. If you want to be part of this, uh, we have all the information on the website at bgcovenant.org fasting. You can go there and watch a video to get an explainer. You can learn more about it. It's one or two days a week of kind of sun up to sundown, and it's not so that we might lose weight. It's not that we can deny ourselves things because that's the idea. It's so that we might find Jesus in a season. And so if you're interested in that, I want to make this invitation now. You can go there, you sign up there, you'll get uh, encouragements and resources and all the things with it. So we want to do that together. We'll mention it again next week, but fasting is going to happen. And I mentioned fasting because we're going to join Jesus at a dinner party. And maybe when you think of a dinner party, you think of a scene, something like this one on the screen. Maybe that's what you think of, young, attractive people with too many plates on the table posing for a picture. I don't know why they have three plates each, but they do. Um, everyone loves a dinner party, though. Everybody idolizes the idea of a good time with friends and, and good food and good wine good memories, sweet encouragement, maybe laughter, maybe tears. It, you just, there's something about being with friends that warms us. It draws us. Jesus attends a dinner party in Luke 14. We're going to go there. If you have your Bibles, you can turn there. And what he's going to do is give us advice um, to the attenders of the party. He's going to tell the host what they should be thinking about. And then next week, we're going to take uh, this dinner party and Jesus is going to give us a metaphor that helps us understand the entirety of the kingdom. So let's start this week. Luke 14, verse 1, the Bible says this, One Sabbath, when Jesus went to eat in the house of a prominent Pharisee, he was being carefully watched. There in front of him was a man suffering from abnormal swelling of his body. Jesus asked the Pharisees and the experts in the law, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they remained silent. So taking hold of the man, he healed him and he sent him on his way. And then he asked them, if one of you has a child or an ox that falls into a well on the Sabbath day, will you not immediately pull it out? And they had nothing to say. So they gather for this dinner party and someone is there with a malady and Jesus goes, let's start here. Everybody's gathering for a ritualistic celebration. It's, everybody's gathering for this meal and there'll be prayers and passages read and songs sung. And, and we're here at this prominent religious person's house to do the thing we always do. And yet here is something that needs our attention. As Americans, we don't do Sabbath, so we don't totally get this. We don't do Sabbath like they did Sabbath. And if you take a little extra time for your coffee on Saturday, that's not Sabbath. That doesn't count. No work, no busyness. The idea is actually just means to cease. You just literally cease everything. Found in Genesis, the idea is that, that God rested in the creation of the earth. He, he, it was good, and so he rested. He, he waited. He watched. He ceased his work because it was good. And you and I, we are instructed, commanded to practice that as well. 
Now, we don't do it, and we could do it, and that's a different sermon altogether, and yet the idea is that we might cease and we might rest so that we can see that what the Lord has done is good. What happened then is food would be prepped in advance. Food was prepped the previous day. It becomes a day of rest and worship, and I said blessings and prayers and and songs and readings. It was a collective acknowledgement, Sabbath was, that God is able, that God is capable, that God is ever-present, and that as we rest, he continues to work things out in our lives. So they're at the dinner party hosted by the Pharisee, who's a rule-following sort of guy. And historically, we give the Pharisees a bad name in evangelical church. We were like, oh, the Pharisees, they're such bad rule followers. Historically, Pharisees were responsible for keeping Judaism alive in some of its hardest moments, in some of the most uh, oppressed times. Pharisees, because of their great rule following, kept the faith alive. They said, we won't capitulate, we won't change, we're going to keep doing what we're supposed to do. And there is a a season of of the history of Israel where the Pharisees are the reason that the faith kind of maintained. I mean, God's the ultimate reason, but they were the party that kind of kept at it. What that that does, though, that hardens them a bit. They now think that rule following must be the way. Some of you in the room are old enough to know relatives that were alive in the Depression, my great-grandmother was, uh, we were at her house often growing up, and she was a depression child. What this does is it changed her whole world's view and mindset. Uh, nothing was ever wasted. Nothing was thrown away. Everything was saved and scrapped and held because she grew up in a season where you didn't know if there was another meal. When she passed away um, and people began to kind of clean out her house and her stuff, there's just hundreds and thousands, not hundreds of thousands, I'd be indifferent, hundreds and thousands of dollars in her freezer, wrapped up and just stuck in various places in in a package with um, pork chops. There'd be $1,000 in cash. Why? She didn't trust the banks. Because in the Depression, the banks failed and people went to run and get their money and there was no money. And so if you're a kid of the Depression, what do you do with your money? You wrap it up with pork chops. Because at least you know where it is. It's safe there. And that, that never changed for her. Last April, we took our kids to South Africa and we were with some friends there. And we, um, they, came, they, they came from a long way off to visit us. And so we kind of had this family reunion and uh, they were hungry. And so I said, well, let's go get them some food. So very American thing to do. Um, their favorite thing, which doesn't make me mad, is they like uh, Kentucky Fried Chicken. And so uh, there's a, a KFC down the road from the church. And I was like, let's go get it. And so we bought um, just buckets of chicken for our friends. And um, we're just sort of having a feast at the church. And uh, our friends are desperately poor. And they came a long way. They probably used that week's money to get the transportation to see us. And my children are politely eating their chicken and they're eating chicken, and people eating french fries, and drinking Coca-Cola, and we're having a great Kentucky Fried Chicken sort of day, and my kids eat chicken like American kids eat chicken. And um, Bella takes her chicken, her perfectly eaten normal piece of chicken, and sets it down, and the toddler she's holding looks at her like she's insane, grabs it off the plate, puts the whole thing in her mouth, and proceeds to polish the bone. Because there's still meat on it. There's still some skin on it. There's still something on there. Why didn't you eat the whole thing? And it was the first kind of aha moment where my kids were like, this is different. Because if you grow up not knowing where your next meal comes from, you don't leave anything on that chicken bone because you don't know if you're going to have chicken tomorrow. And so then they watched in kind of impressed awe as these children cleaned out every bone. And we would then tell stories about, yeah, when we lived here, we'd eat with our friends and you get in the habit. And so then you don't just leave the bone, you crack the bone in half and you get out the marrow too because there's calories to be had, so have them. 
What influences us, then drives us and shapes the rest of our lives? And so the Pharisees were shaped by rule following. They were for this. This was their life. And so everything they saw was rules everywhere because that's what sustained them in the hard times. They held on to the law of Moses. And you could tell my mama that the grocery store wasn't running out of food or the banks were going to stay open. It didn't matter. She's still freezing her money. You could tell a Pharisee that Judaism was safe and they'd made it through the hard parts. It didn't matter. They still had to hold fast to the rules. So you don't do any work on the Sabbath, including healing. Jesus wasn't concerned. Jesus heals anyway. So what can we take from that? Is the Sabbath dead? Nope. What we take from it is that um, even as we rest, the kingdom of God is at work. Even as we rest, Jesus representing the kingdom of God doesn't stop working. And the invitation to us is that agents of kingdom life can continue working as well. So if you're practicing rest, if you're on vacation, if you're um, getting your work done at the office, whatever you think you're doing in your rule-following world says, this is the place where I do work, this is where I do school, this is where I do, you're a minister there. The kingdom of God doesn't stop because you're in a different category or compartment. The kingdom of God continues on. And as agents of the kingdom of God, that's you. And so we continue to work. In Kroger, you are a minister. You're there to do your shopping, but I don't think so. I think you're secondarily there to do your shopping. You're first there as a minister with your eyes open. At your kid's sporting event. Parents. Yelling at the ref is not a ministry, right? (laughs) But he missed the call. He's 17. He makes $9 an hour. We don't need to yell at the ref, right? If you're in church, you're not here to consume. I hope you're filled up. But you're not here to consume. If you're in church as a follower of Jesus, you're here as a minister, You're here to be equipped, but you're also here to minister. So you can look around. I'm going to make you do this. It might be a little uncomfortable. I want everybody to just look around. Just scan the like six or eight people around you. 20 bucks says you don't know all of them. (laughs) Now you stop looking. You're like, don't make eye contact. (laughs) We don't want to have to meet after this. It could be weird. I was just here to consume. No, you're a minister. That could be their first week here. Or you could meet them today and find out that you've both been here for five years and you never talked to each other. But your job as a minister, even in a simple way, is to find out who do I not know and instead of finding the person I know, I'm gonna go find somebody I don't know and say, I'm glad you're here. What's your name? What's your story? Because you're a minister. At school, at work, at a dinner party, Jesus is saying you are not off duty because duty is beautiful kingdom because it's, it's, there's no time when it's not appropriate to share his love and his grace. There's no time when it's not appropriate to have the kingdom come into earth. Some of us still clock out. And Jesus says that's not how it works. So having already offended the hosts by healing at their Sabbath, Jesus now turns his attention to the guests. Verse 7. When he noticed how the guests picked the places of honor at the table, he told them this parable. When someone invites you to a wedding feast, do not hold... Do not take the place of honor for a person more distinguished than you may have been invited. If so, the host who invited both of you will come and say to you, give this person your seat. Then, humiliated, you'll have to take the least important place. But when you are invited, take the lowest place so that when your host comes, he'll say to you, friend, move up to a better place. Then you'll be honored in the presence of all the guests. For those who exalt themselves will be humbled, 
and those who humble themselves will be exalted. So Jesus is pointing at us saying, this is about humility. What you're seeing at this dinner party is going to be about humility. We don't do dinner parties like this where there are certain seats that are honored seats and non-honored seats. I mean, there's evidence out there. There's studies about in a meeting at a corporate boardroom who takes what seat and there really is power at play there. We're not going to get into that. You can Google it. Actually, what I think about when I think about the seats of honor or people jostling to get into the right spot in the right place, I actually think about the airport. You're, you know what I'm talking about? It's gate B6 and everybody is at gate B6 gathering around, trying to be the first one on the plane. Even though there's boarding groups and you have assigned seating, for some reason, everybody mobs the gate. And the gate agent is like, okay, we're doing priority now. And there's 400 people come up and you're like, that's not priority. Members of the military and then people who are like serving our country have to fight through throngs of individuals just so they can get onto the plane because everybody is so anxious to be on the plane. There's actually a term for this. I did not know this. I found it out last week. In the airline industry, they call the people who crowd the boarding gate, gate lice. (laughs) No joke. Because they're aggravating and really tough to get rid of. They call them gate lice. We have a gate lice problem in B6. It's a weird mixture of impatience and pride. You have an assigned seat. But something in humanity always has us jostling for a better spot, doesn't it? We're always trying to get there first. I actually heard someone recently complaining about the fact that wheelchair-bound passengers get to bypass the line. It wasn't joking. I was like, are you, we're we're mad that people with special needs are getting on the flight first? You have an assigned seat. But it was just like, I just can't believe we all got here and then they wheel right up. And I'm like, what are we doing? (laughs) We've lost our humility. We've lost our minds a little bit. But that's because we're exalting ourselves and not humbling ourselves, right? That's because we show up entitled, not with humility, Jesus says, when you show up in the world, show up with humility, not entitlement. You don't earn this. You don't need this. You didn't get this. Show up here and let somebody tell you to come on up to first class. Don't try to get into first class and then have somebody tell you not to. Have you ever made that mistake where you accidentally go up to the gate before it's your turn? I've made that mistake. That's embarrassing. We're like, I think they called us. Did they say main one? I think they said main one. And you go up and you hand them your ticket and they scan it. They go, mur, mur. and it's like, oh, can you stand aside so important people can come through? And you, it's like the ultimate shame. We're like, sorry, you have more than me. Sorry, you're better than me. Sorry about that. And you're in the same plane. You have the same seat. Nothing changed, but you tried to get in on the wrong one. And he goes, if you humble yourself, you're going to be exalted. And if you exalt yourself, mur, mur, you have to stand over to the side and watch other people. Jesus to the dinner party says, you have to have the heart of the servant even when you're being served. Chase humility whenever possible. And it's maybe a little awkward at the dinner party now because Jesus is now lecturing them on how to attend a dinner party after already offending the host and already healing at the thing. And he says, host, are you done yet? Let me turn back to you. Verse 12, then Jesus said to the host, when you give a luncheon or a dinner, don't invite your friends your brothers, your sisters, your relatives, your rich neighbors. If you do, they may invite you back. You'll be repaid. When you give a banquet, invite the poor and the crippled and the lame and the blind, and you will be blessed. Although they cannot repay you, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. Jesus now goes from humility to a takedown of insider culture. 
What he's saying is hospitality for your gain isn't hospitality at all. You doing something to leverage your own life and to to grow your own uh, status isn't being hospitable. If you have Bill Gates over for dinner or your local Young Life leader, one of those stands to benefit you more. You now have connections with one of the richest people on earth. Or you have connections with somebody who works with your middle schooler and is hungry. One of those is benefiting you. The other one is like, it's like, well, this would be nice of us to do. Which one is hospitality? Well, I, I served Bill Gates nice food and we really welcomed him with Jesus-like love. Like, cool, but that was for you. Jesus is inviting you to look at the world differently than everyone else. In a world obsessed with status and growing your status and becoming an influencer and being, Jesus says, look at the world differently than everyone else. What if you don't look at what benefits you, but what benefits others? Like, if you think about it, flip the the script on Bill Gates coming to your house. What do you have to offer Bill Gates? Not much. He doesn't need your network, right? He doesn't need your connections. He doesn't need your expertise. He doesn't need your financial advice. That's for you. (coughs) Jesus is reiterating his, his earlier challenge. Never stop being a minister. Meals are ministry opportunities. These are all chances for us to do kingdom work. See, life, I would say, is lived on a fulcrum. You know what a fulcrum is? We'll put a picture up. It's, uh, it's from Let's Talk Science, copyright 2020 at the bottom there. So if you need to look this up, now you know what to Google. I didn't make this one. I'm good at making these, but not this one. Um, a fulcrum, maybe you'd know it by its colloquial name, the teeter-totter. Uh, the teeter-totter is what you're thinking of, right? Some of you were already thinking that. Why is he calling it a fulcrum? The fulcrum's the thing in the middle that determines what's happening here. One is going up and the other is going down. Here's the reason this is important to us. You're on one side of the other. You're either a load waiting to be lifted up or your life is represented as effort attempting to lift someone else's load. And and we all land on one side or the other. Now, it's a false dichotomy that you're 100% one or the other, but you've got to be on one side or the other of of the middle. You're either waiting for others to lift you up. You're working to get higher status in your life. You're spending your life hoping to be raised up. Or you're spending your life as that finger pushes down. You're spending your life. You're giving your resources. You're using your time. You're using your relationships and your network. You're using that to see others lifted up. And that's the whole point of what Jesus is saying here is is when you give a banquet, he says, you can be the one who's using the banquet to lift yourself up, have the best people over, do all the right things, or you can use your life and your resources to be pressing down on the other side of it and lifting up those who otherwise would never get off the ground. So you're either organizing yourself on one side or the other. You organize your days on one side or the other, whether you're serving or inviting someone over, how are you generous with your money? What you're doing one way or the other is either for you or for others. And Jesus has clearly said, use your life for others. Yes, there are mutually beneficial relationships. Someone's in here going, but what if it's for both? Yes, that happens. But the scale always tips one way or the other. The mark of someone active in a kingdom life is that the scale for you tips to lifting others up, that your day is about lifting someone up, that your life is about lifting someone up, that that meeting with your boss is about lifting up your boss. What? When you give a banquet, when you live out your days, live as a servant 
of others as a conduit of love and grace, not for your benefit, but for theirs. My wife is a a realtor. There are other realtors in the church. Katie Hannum's a great realtor. Deb Schaefer's a great realtor. This is not an advertisement for my wife as a realtor. Done? Um, One of my favorite things that I see my wife do as a realtor is give away a client, which is a weird thing because as a realtor, you uh, pay money every month to be one, and you only get paid if you sell a house. And so to give away a client is to give away future earnings. But it's one of my favorite things because it reminds us, it's the proof for us that her work is ministry. And we say it all the time. We, we have the real conversation, is this about ministry or is this about money? Because if it's about money, I'm gonna leverage these people to get a paycheck. If it's about ministry, I'm gonna serve these people to their ends and benefits. And if we do it right, maybe God will bless it and we'll get paid anyway. But sometimes we don't, and that's okay too. Is it ministry or money? So sometimes she has to give away a client because she sees their need and goes, there is someone better for you than me. Yes, I could figure this out. And yes, I could ask the right people and I could probably just call the person, but you might actually, you, look, you need a commercial lot in Toledo for this certain type of development. I can help you with that, but let me actually get you to somebody who's done it for 25 years and you'll be benefited. And people are like, are you sure? And she goes, yeah, this is better. Oh, you need development lots? You're going to buy some farmland over there? Yeah, I could help you with that. But this guy's been doing it for a while. Let me, let me introduce you and make sure that works for you. She had a client from Hawaii, um, which is buying real estate in Toledo, which seems like a weird flip, but, uh, you know. And the client said, I'm going to buy like 20 or 30 houses over the next few years. I'm getting into the investment game. And she said, I would only do that for money. I don't know you. I can't meet you. You're in Hawaii. This is not ministry. So what she did is she gave him to a brand new agent who had just started, who had no contacts, no leads, no nothing. And she goes, hey, you're a hustler and you're just hungry for business. And this guy has nothing but business to give you. And he's like, yeah, I'd love that. I'd take that. So she turned around these 30 possible sales and she gave them to somebody else because it wasn't ministry for her. And it became a ministry as she gave it to someone else. Now she's imperfect. I'm imperfect. This is not like, oh, the pastor's family sure is great at this. Um, We try. But this is the one area of my life where it's so crystal clear. It's ministry or money, and it can't be both. It has to fall on one side of the spectrum. Sometimes ministry leads to money for her in her job, but often it doesn't. The question for us is how do we see our lives? Do we see our, our days? How do we see our jobs? How do you see your friendships? How do you, how do you see it? If in your most honest, if I give you truth serum, in your most honest self, Is my job a ministry? I'm an engineer. I'm an educator. Is my job a ministry? Because it is a ministry. Because the Bible says you're a minister right where you are, wherever you are, no matter what you're doing, it is your job. The old thing we always say is, what's the job of a firefighter? What's the job description? Putting out fires. What's the job of a Christian firefighter? We would say to know Jesus and make him known while putting out fires. It changes your whole worldview when you say, I am a follower of Jesus and my life is to be used for the good and the benefit of others. And I still have a thing to do. I still need, I'm responsible to people. All the things don't change down the road, but you still have to do the main thing first. And if the main thing is Jesus in your life, then Jesus becomes the main thing in your day. How do we possibly hold life with an open hand? How do we serve others with humility for their benefit? It takes us back to the airport gate, to be honest. How do do we find security enough to do this? 
I don't crowd the gate at the airport because the app on my phone says I already have a seat, right? The reason we think it's a little insane to crowd the gate is because we have an assigned seat, which represents what? Security. If I don't race up to the gate, they're not going to give my seat to someone else. I have an assigned seat. I'm good. I'm getting on the plane one way or the other. Whether I get on first or last, my seat is assigned. My seat is secured. Security is what fuels humility. And when we suffer from pride and selfishness, it is rooted in our insecurity. Unsure of our position and our status in the world, unsure if our needs will be met, we leverage others to lift ourselves. But to have a life dedicated to lifting others up, we have to truly believe that we're secure in Jesus. We have to truly believe that. Not just our place in his kingdom, but his provision along the way. If I give away this client, do you think there's enough money for tomorrow? That's a move of security. I believe that Jesus has our best in mind that we won't starve. And if we are hungry, there's a reason for that too. We started today with a story of the Sabbath. I said to rest in some way is to acknowledge our limits. There's this beauty in the Sabbath of recognizing that if I stop for a minute, the world keeps going. If I stop for a minute, that God keeps working. To cease is to be aware of our dependence on God. To stop for a minute recognizes that God is what drives this whole thing. And we're dependent on him and him alone. We are created beings, not creators. We're created, utterly dependent. We were made by God and for God to be brought to wholeness and salvation by God and for God, supplied with life and hope by God, for God. We are helpless, beautifully helpless to even guarantee our next breath. No one in here can promise me that you'll get another day tomorrow. You were made by God and for God and you were on God's time. This helplessness is the precious root of our humility. It makes us gloriously small, which should embolden us. Once you realize that the world doesn't spin because of your activity, once you realize that God's kingdom isn't built because of your goodness and rule following, once you realize that you're not in charge, you become really small and there's glory in that smallness and there's boldness in that smallness. People who are truly followers of Christ have nothing to lose because there's nothing more to gain. The reason people who follow Jesus should live as if there's nothing to lose is because in Christ, we have nothing more to gain. And when we fail to recognize that, we're living out of an insecurity and a scarcity mindset that says there must be more for me. And when we're in Jesus, we realize there is no more. I have no more needs. I have no more wants. There's nothing left for me to find or chase or gain because I have Christ and what else is there? Through the work of Jesus on the cross and the resurrection, we have everything. We have everlasting life and we're living it out now. You don't wait to go to heaven, you have it now. At the moment of belief, as a follower of Christ, you have everlasting life, you are in eternity today, and you don't live out the string of this life hoping to get to heaven and see what that's all about. Jesus said, I am here to bring heaven to earth and you will be my ambassadors. So you are the ambassador of heaven today. You're bringing heaven here now. You are a minister now. And when you go to lunch today and at the Super Bowl party next week, you're the minister of heaven, the bringer of heaven everywhere you go. So the question we started with is kind of how do we do a dinner party around here? How does Jesus do a dinner party? 
How do we practice holy hospitality? What, how do we live out life with others in the Jesus way? May we be known by how we lift others up. May we be a people who are always adding a chair to the table. May we be a people who are always adding a chair to the table. Acknowledging that there's always room for more. In our great security, acknowledging there's always room for another. I'll put bleachers back here if I have to for a Sunday morning to, add, to, to illustrate the point. There's room for more. There's room at your table. There's room in your heart. There's room with your hands. There's room for more people in the kingdom of heaven. We live as if the seating is fixed. There's always room for more. And if we live like that, passionate about finding outsiders and calling them insiders, passionate about figuring out your story and your story and learning your name and hearing your life and knowing your heart, passionate about that, never shying away from a life of sacrifice, but instead shouting for all to hear there's room at God's table, then we will begin to live out Jesus's dinner party etiquette. The beauty of a life where there is no lack, where there is no want, where healing happens, that's what we long for. That's what we want in our deepest parts of our heart. That's all we're after. There's a feast like no other. So the challenge for us, the challenge as we go, is to figure out how we might invite others into it. But first, how do we sit at that feast in the security of our salvation and realize that we are covered? And from there, we go and invite others in. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are grateful when we recognize that there was always a seat at the table and that was a seat for us. Father, you didn't limit the, the capacity of your kingdom when it came to our lives. You didn't look at our sin and our waywardness and our brokenness and say we were too broken to get in. Father, your love for us is evidenced in your grace. Your love for us is evidenced in Jesus and his life and his sacrifice. So as we ponder the beauty of your scripture, as we think about the words of Jesus, God, our prayer is that you would conform us to him, that we would be more like him, that we would see our world through eyes that are more Christ-like every day. So God, give us boldness and security that we might make outsiders insiders. Give us the conviction, if we need it, of where we're living our lives selfishly. More than anything, Father, remind us that you have included us in eternity in the kingdom of heaven and that it is our, not just our job, Lord, it's our joy. Give us the great joy of seeing lives transformed, of seeing wet carpet. God, give us the joy of celebrating as people come to the feast and get to feast on life like we have. God, we love you. We thank you for this day. We thank you for this time. We lift this up in Jesus' name. Amen.